Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! As anti-government protests in Iran pass their 100th day, we'll look at what has sustained demonstrators even as they face a brutal crackdown with thousands arrested, more than 500 killed and two executed so far. As calls grow for the international community to do more, we'll get response and analysis from an Iranian-American professor as well as the head of the Campaign for Human Rights in Iran. Then Russia launches another massive series of missile attacks on cities across Ukraine, in Lviv, Kyiv, and Odessa, after explosions hit a maternity hospital in Kherson. This comes as Russian President Putin says he is prepared to end the war in Ukraine. Are negotiations likely? We'll speak with longtime anti-war activist and theorist Gilbert Ashkar, author of Perilous Power, the Middle East and U.S. Foreign Policy with Noam Chomsky. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Israel, returning Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has inaugurated the most far-right government in the country's history. Netanyahu, who's still facing a corruption trial, was heckled on the floor of the Knesset as he delivered his agenda earlier today. We will guarantee Israel's military advantage in the region by unceasing empowerment, the first mission that the members here are yelling but canceling as if it isn't important is to make sure that Iran won't annihilate us with nuclear bombs. Netanyahu's new coalition brings together multiple ultra-religious and ultra-nationalist leaders as critics warn democracy is at risk and Palestinian and Arab rights look set to be even further violated. The new government's announced the expansion of illegal West Bank settlements as a top priority. 2022 was already one of the deadliest years for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and elsewhere in nearly 20 years. Palestinian authorities say over 220 people were killed and over 9,000 injured by Israeli forces in the past year. Outside the Knesset, hundreds of protesters gathered to condemn what they called an illegitimate government. Russia's launched a massive series of missile attacks on cities across Ukraine, with reports of explosions and fresh power outages in cities including Lviv, Kyiv and Odessa. The attacks came after Ukrainian officials called on residents to evacuate the city of Kherson amidst heavy Russian artillery strikes. On Wednesday, two explosions rattled a maternity hospital in Kherson, where at least five people were recovering from childbirth. 
It was frightening, also unexpected. The explosions began abruptly. The window handles started to tear off. Glass. All my hands are still shaking, frankly speaking. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave his annual address to the Ukrainian parliament, where he again pressed for Ukraine to join the European Union. The Biden administration's approved the sale of anti-tank mines to Taiwan, valued at $180 million. This comes after China's foreign ministry Wednesday condemned Taiwanese leaders for extending mandatory military service from four months to a year. Realizing the complete reunification of the motherland is the common will of all Chinese people. It is an unstoppable, great historical event. We believe Taiwan compatriots are highly principled, and they will not serve as cannon fodder for Taiwan independent separatist forces. China's Center for Disease Control and Prevention says it stopped publishing daily updates on COVID-19 cases and will instead publish monthly figures. The change follows the abrupt cancellation of China's long-running zero-COVID policy, with tens of millions across China becoming infected each day. Videos shared on social media show emergency rooms and intensive care units overflowing with COVID patients and funeral homes crammed with the bodies of the dead. The United States will impose new coronavirus testing requirements on travelers from China. Beginning January 5th, passengers boarding U.S.-bound flights from China will be required to show proof of a recent negative COVID test. Officials in Italy imposed similar requirements Wednesday and urged the European Union to follow suit after half of all passengers arriving on two flights from China tested positive for coronavirus. The death toll from last weekend's historic winter storm has risen to at least 38 in western New York, the hardest-hit region. As residents recover from the storm and mourn those lost, criticism against and between local leaders is mounting. Erie County Executive Mark Polencars says he's spoken with state and county officials about taking over control of snow removal efforts from the city of Buffalo. Mayor's not going to be happy to hear about it, but storm after storm after storm after storm, the city, unfortunately, is the last one to be opened, and that shouldn't be the case. It's embarrassing, to tell you the truth. Poland Cars has also been criticized for his response, accused of delaying a driving ban that could have saved lives. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown, whom some are calling on to resign, again rejected any responsibility for his response to the tragic storm. Again, as you know, this was a historic storm. Probably uh, the worst storm that the city has seen in over 50 years, and perhaps maybe the worst storm in recorded history uh, since these storms have been tracked. In South Dakota, the National Guard was called in to help dig out thousands of people trapped in their homes, many without power, at the Pine Ridge and Rosebud reservations, which saw at least 30 inches of snowfall. Meanwhile, federal regulators are launching an inquiry into the preparedness of U.S. power systems for extreme weather events. Climate activists say the current fossil fuel-based energy system has again revealed its unreliable they're urging for greater investment in sustainable energy infrastructure. 
In Jackson, Mississippi, residents remain under a boil water notice after freezing temperatures caused pipes to burst. This is Danielle Holmes, a volunteer at a water distribution site where drivers waited in long lines Wednesday. In Jackson, Mississippi, of course, we know that this has been going on for the last 40, 50 years, and now it has reached its peak where the infrastructure is crumbling. U.S. airports remain mired in chaos, with more flight cancellations announced. On Wednesday, over 2,800 flights were canceled, 3,200 delayed. The vast majority of the canceled flights were at Southwest Airlines, whose CEO said Wednesday it may take days to restore the airline's regular schedule. The latest delays came after the Transport Workers Union said some Southwest ground support workers developed frostbite during shifts that lasted up to 18 hours over the holiday weekend. In August, 38 state attorneys general warned in an open letter to Congress that the Department of Transportation is failing to properly regulate the airline industry. They wrote, quote, Americans are justifiably frustrated that federal government agencies charged with overseeing airline consumer protection are unable or unwilling to hold the airline industry accountable, unquote. According to the watchdog group Accountable.us, Southwest spent $5.6 billion dollars on stock buybacks in the three years leading up to the pandemic, rather than making investments in infrastructure to be better prepared for extreme weather events. A federal judge in Michigan has sentenced Delaware trucker Barry Croft to nearly 20 years in prison for masterminding the foil 2020 kidnapping plot against Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. It's the longest sentence handed down in the case, though prosecutors had argued for a life sentence calling Croft the spiritual leader of the far-right anti-government group of convicts. In California, David DePapi, who was arrested after invading Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco home and attacking her husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer, pleaded not guilty Wednesday to state charges, including attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. The far-right conspiracy theorist reportedly told police he wanted to break the House Speaker's kneecaps. Maryland Democratic Congress member Jamie Raskin announced Wednesday he has lymphoma, referring to it as a serious but curable form of cancer and will undergo treatment, including chemotherapy. Raskin was the lead impeachment manager for Trump's second impeachment following the January 6th insurrection and is on the House committee investigating the attack. He will become the top Democrat on the oversight committee in the new Congress. Here in New York, prosecutors in Nassau County have opened a criminal probe into George Santos after the Republican congressmember-elect admitted he lied about his work, his education, and his family history. In the latest revelation, resurfaced social media posts show Santos wrote last year his mother died in the September 11, 2001 attacks, only to claim months later she died in 2016. Santos has also falsely claimed Jewish ancestry and said his grandparents fled the Holocaust, lied about attending Baruch College and New York University, and lied about working at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. On Wednesday, Santos granted his first television interview since The New York Times published its expose on Santos's lies. He spoke on Fox News with former Congress member Tulsi Gabbard, who was sitting in for Tucker Carlson. These are blatant lies. My question is, do you have no shame? 
Do you have no shame in the people well, who are now you're asking to trust you to go and be their voice for them, their families and their kids in Washington? Tulsi, I can say the same thing about the Democrats and, and the party. Look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden's been lying to the American people for 40 years. He's the president of the United States. Democrats resoundly support him. Do they have no shame? Meanwhile, federal prosecutors have opened an informal investigation into George Santos's finances, if that's even his name. When Santos first ran for Congress in 2020, he listed no assets and a salary of $55,000. Yet Santos reported millions of dollars of income from a company he founded last year, somewhere between 3 and $11 million. And FEC filings show he loaned his most recent campaign more than $700,000. New York Congressmember Richie Torres tweeted, quote, where did all that money come from? The Ethics Committee must start investigating immediately, unquote. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has yet to comment on the scandal. And a new lawsuit warns plastic containers used in lots of common household products contain high levels of so-called forever chemicals, known by the acronym PFAS, which have been linked to cancer, liver disease and reproductive health issues. The lawsuit says Texas-based company Enhance produces tens of millions of plastic containers, which could leach PFAS into foods, personal care products and cleaning supplies. This comes as manufacturing giant 3M announced last week it will stop all production of PFAS by 2026 amidst a litany of lawsuits. Last month, California sued 3M and other companies for contaminating the state's drinking water, rivers, lakes, wildlife and residents with the forever chemical. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, as anti-government protests in Iran pass their 100th day amidst a brutal crackdown, calls are growing for the international community to do more. We'll get response from an Iranian-American professor as well as the head of the Campaign for Human Rights in Iran. Stay with us. میدونه جنگه اثر رنگی هستی بیا که بدون تو یه خونه لنگه میدونه جنگه بیا که وقت تاختن تو دل دشمن بدون ترسه میدونه جنگه دارا و ندار اثر غم و تبار مثل فشنگ قطار میدونه جنگه دیغه شمشیر عشق شهامت و زین کن و جنس سفر وفا فصل اتحاده مرگ اختلافه افتخاره تکه کنم به هموطن بشم تکه گاهش شروع خروش و تقیان مردمه چشم ساره فصل شونه به شونه پا به پا دیوار دفاعی باورم به هم بستگی مثل ایمان الهی مثل مسخ دین مثل مجنون بی باکسینه Battlefield by the Iranian hip-hop artist Maj Salehi He was arrested in October and could face the death penalty for participating in protests This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh 
As we begin today's show, looking at the ongoing anti-government protests in Iran, which passed their 100th day this week, the protests have been met with widespread arrests, brutal police violence and public executions. This week, Iranian authorities targeted the family of the Iranian soccer superstar Ali Dai, who has for months been an outspoken critic of Iran's crackdown by, quote, forcing an Iranian airliner to land mid-flight so his wife and daughter could be removed from the plane and stopped from leaving Iran. The Human Rights Activist News Agency reports thousands of protesters have been arrested and more than 500 have been killed so far, including 69 children. This follows the recent public executions of two young men for their participation in protests. The Oslo-based organization, Iran Human Rights, has identified at least 100 detainees sentenced to death or charged with capital offenses. The protests began in September under the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom, following the death of the 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police after she was detained for what they called inappropriate attire. As calls grow for the United States and the international community to respond to Iran's brutal crackdown, President Biden's hinted attempts to restore the Iran nuclear deal may be dead. For more, we're joined by two guests. Hadi Gaimi is the executive director and founder of the Center for Human Rights in Iran, which recently issued a series of recommendations on how Congress can play a vital role in supporting the protesters in Iran. And Nahid Siamdust is a former journalist who's reported across the Middle East, including in Iran, and is now Middle East and Media Studies professor at the University of Texas at Austin. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Thank you so much for joining us. Let's begin with Professor Siamdust in Austin. Can you talk about the significance of these protests and why, unlike previous ones, which were extremely serious uh, uh, across Iran, these have lasted so long? And if you expect them to continue and grow, Professor Siamdust. Sure. Thank you for having me, Amy. These protests have been ongoing because they're not a single issue protest. So they were caused by the death of Masajina Amini, um, but they have been sort of brewing for many, many years and decades. And they're rooted both in a corrupt state, a state with impunity, who, as we know, uh, you know, with the protesters whom it has put on the death row, assigns them lawyers who in part will even um, speak against their own clients. And um the impunity, the lack of justice, uh, the fact that the Islamic Republic has been imposing a kind of lifestyle on Iranians at large um, that people, especially the young ones who have been on the streets, completely reject. So these protests are ongoing because also because Iranians for, you know, several decades uh, played along with this, um, you know, pretense of the Islamic Republic that the system could be reformed from within through uh, various processes such as elections. And so there's now been a reckoning, a nationwide reckoning that that is no longer a possibility, that that is that will not be happening. The most recent elections of Ibrahim Raisi, of course, were the most engineered, uh, where Iranians uh, showed up in, you know, the sort of lowest numbers ever in the post a post-revolutionary um, history. And so 
it's really a point at which many of these strands are coming together and there's a reckoning that this system is no longer a system that people at large uh, want to maintain and um, their, you know, the deep cultural roots of it are visible in all the artistic productions that are going on and all the, you know, creativity um, that's there in the slogans. Nahid, could you comment, in fact, uh, precisely on why it is that so many uh, figures from the Iranian cultural world have been targeted from film directors, award-winning film directors, actors, musicians? Uh, if you could uh, explain what the significance of that is. And, and this uh, phenomenon seems to be spreading. Sure. Um, because precisely because of the process that the Islamic Republic has pursued over the last few decades, which is shut down any kind of political internal organized uh, opposition to it or alternatives to it, um, celebrities and uh, filmmakers and musicians have, because of that crisis of representation, really become the spokespeople of the people. And so they are the ones who have the kinds of following on social media that allows them to speak for the people and to represent them. And that is precisely why also the state has been targeting them. Uh, you know, some of the most powerful videos that we've seen or... Um, statements that we've seen recently have come either from rappers to much Salehi, who's also sitting on death row right now, um, and uh, Mani Hariri, the filmmaker who spoke out very strongly against the minister of culture, who asked filmmakers and musicians and art artists to come out again into the fray and produce their work, um, to which Mani Hariri said, I'm sorry, but we're too busy mourning the people you're killing to come out and dance for you. Hadi Raimi, could you comment on uh, the enduring protests? And your organization has been documenting human rights abuses. Uh, could you explain what those abuses are, Hadi Raimi? Uh, yeah, good morning, and thank you for having me. The human rights violations are very widespread. Uh, they're happening all over the country. And if you just look at the numbers, they speak very loudly. We have had over 500 uh, people killed, and that is a minimum. I really believe it's twice that because I'm aware of many families who have been forced to not publicize the death of their children on the streets or family members. So over 500, possibly 1,000 people are dead on the streets. Nearly 20,000 people have been taken um, into prison, and at least over 10,000 of them remain as political prisoners. Uh, we have uh, 69 children, people under the age of 18, killed on the streets, and many more detained and taken to unknown, unknown locations. Uh, so, uh, to basically sum it up, with the executions happening right now, we are seeing very widespread growth and uh, serious uh, violations, and, and most uh, serious one also includes sexual assault. We're starting to get reports of rape of young girls and women in, in prisons and sexual assault from the time they are, um, they are picked up in the street till they're taken to interrogations and during the interrogations and even death in custody as a result of uh, very severe sexual assault. Uh, so unfortunately, the situation in Iran in terms of human rights metrics is a complete disaster and is the worst uh, I have ever seen it with my own eyes. And Hadi Raimi, uh, talk about um, women face, the sexual abuse. Uh, Nicholas Kristof wrote a piece in The yes. New York Times recently, Iran uses rape to enforce women's modesty, quoting, uh, well, 
talking about a 14-year-old girl. Explain what happened. Indeed, it's a very heartbreaking story, and it came to us uh, from very much underground, from people who were engaged and witness to every stage of it. This was a 14-year-old girl living in a neighborhood that, ironically, is populated by uh, many people who work for the regime as security forces, actually for its uh, special forces on the streets and uh, the uh, armed men on the street. Many of them, uh, we were told, live in that neighborhood. And yet the high school, the girls' high school in that neighborhood became a hub of protest and activity in um, late September, early October. And uh, Masume, the 14-year-old girl, had uh, joined the protest on, in her school. The school cameras uh, identified her. She was picked up, taken away for three days. And when she came back after three days, uh, she was completely mentally and physically destroyed. She had suffered uh, serious sexual assault, including gang rape and violence, and had serious injuries to her body as a result, and psychologically had completely lost it and going around her apartment complex and telling everyone uh, what had happened to her. Her mother decided to publicize this and was in the process of documenting it and uh, bringing it out to the open. But given the neighborhood, uh, a security force who lived in the building um, and was actually a friend of the mother became aware and uh, alerted the authorities who came again that night and took both the mother and daughter away. Uh, after a few days, uh, the neighbors uh, had to pull together all the resources to go and post bail, a very heavy bail for the mother. Um, and the daughter's body was turned to uh, them in a mental hospital, in, in a psychiatric hospital. She had died. They had taken there. We don't know what happened then, but her body was turned in. Again, uh, our sources were involved in burying her. And then the mother was so frightened, uh, she took her other child and disappeared. Um, so we're very confident this happened, and we're worried many more are, have happened. It's starting to seep out from inside prisons and other families. We're encouraging families to preserve the evidence, the medical evidence, especially till they're safe and secure to publicize it. Uh, Professor Samdust, if you could also comment uh, on this uh, phenomenon, the truth of which is only just coming out, the sexual violence against protesters, and also the way in which the protests, uh, protesters are taking on new methods. There's now a lot of video circulating uh, with turban-tossing uh, protesters going after clerics and, and tipping over their uh, turbans before running away. Professor Samdust. Yes, um, the, you know, these protests have been fought on many, many uh, fronts. And uh, we have had, uh, as uh, Hadi Raimi just mentioned, these uh, horrible, horrible reports of torture, of sexual abuse coming out from the prisons. And, you know, the the tipping off the turbans that one of the youths who had done that and who had been imprisoned for that and released from prison uh, three days after his release committed suicide, um, so, you know, we, we know based on uh, both these reports, but also the number of people who, very young people who come out of, you know, the person who committed suicide was 16. Um, 
the young people who come out of prison and are no longer themselves uh, or commit suicide, that clearly horrible the things are happening once these, uh, you know, children and uh, and adults are arrested and uh, taken in. Um, Axios has a new report on President Biden saying in newly surfaced video that the Iran nuclear deal is dead. Axios reports Biden made the remark in a short conversation with a woman who attended an election rally in Oceanside, California. The woman asked Biden to announce that the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as the Iran deal is formally known, is dead. Biden responded he would not for a lot of reasons, but then added, it's dead, but we're not going to announce it. You can listen closely. Um, Hadi Raimi, if you can talk about the significance of this happening now with the yeah. protests taking place, you are a former CUNY professor of physics as well. Yes. Uh, yes. So, look, uh, uh, before this protest, the JCPOA negotiations were going nowhere. The Iranian government had missed a lot of opportunities to come back to the deal, and it was throwing a lot of obstacles uh, in the path of it. Then these protests happen, and the situation is completely different. Let me tell you what I hear from inside Iran. The Iranian people, at least the ones I talk to, and the analysts are saying that, uh, look, we are a party to this deal, too. Uh, especially the economic benefits that would flow to the regime at this moment is absolutely not justified. And uh, let alone the fact that there can be no trust that they will follow up with their nuclear commitments if they sign a new deal. So they're saying that, uh, for example, the blocked money in the banks that could come back to the Iranian government is really belong to the Iranian people. It is the uh, oil sales proceeds. And the Iranian people have no role in these negotiations and their interests should be protected. So they are especially uh, uh, pointing out that it shouldn't any economic benefit should only be tied um, not just to the nuclear activity, but to the crimes being committed. They want a moratorium on executions. They want a release of all political prisoners. They want the freedom to assemble as their constitution guarantees. Uh, so the situation has changed a lot, but the Iranian government sending a lot of signals that it is willing to come back to negotiations uh, because it obviously wants the economic benefits that will be up its repressive machinery, which is under a lot of stress. Uh, but I hope President Biden really meant it, and especially Europe and U.S. are not trying to strike a backroom deal of uh, thinking this way they can put the nuclear issue in check. I think it would be a disaster to move forward with the old deal. We really need to construct a new package that represents the interests of Iranian people who are not at the table. Hadi, can you explain what the uh, punitive measures now in place, the sanctions against Iran, what effects those yeah. are having, uh, whether they have been in any sense weakening the regime or the economy, and if so, in what ways? 
Well, the new sanctions, not really. They're targeted against uh, individual and institutions mostly involved in human rights violations or carrying out the violence. None of these people really have assets or activity abroad that we can uh, know that uh, is substantial, but it, it is a minimum that should have been done. Uh, I think a lot more has to be done to send a strong message to Iran. The U.S. does not have diplomatic relations, so uh, it's somewhat uh, doesn't have many tools in its toolbox, but Europe does. EU, we have been recommending, should be pulling its ambassadors in tandem, in protest. Uh, and uh, this doesn't mean they argue that we need diplomatic representation and it's more uh, important to have eyes on the ground. And I agree with them. We're not saying to severe all diplomatic relations, but the ambassadors are mostly uh, doing a symbolic role inside Iran. They're not needed and it would be much more impactful. And then the Security Council has obligated itself since 2017 uh, to have a session and attention to issue to instances of sexual violence and conflict. Um, and uh, this is usually happens in February, March. So I believe the Security Council should take that up. And of course, Iran's uh, work with Russia and the support it's getting from Russia and China makes it much more essential for international community uh, to come up with solutions to address the crisis, uh, which also uh, involves Iran's uh, destructive role in the Ukraine war. So I, I think the international community, especially U.S., Europe, Japan, like-minded countries, uh, and Global South should be coming together and uh, uh, exerting much more diplomatic political isolation of the Iranian, uh, Islamic, of Iranian government, given the way it has behaved. And only then the Iranian people will feel like the international community is doing something substantial. Uh, let me put this question to Professor Sam Deuce. Do you feel the same way as Ghadi Gaimi uh, around the issue of the nuclear deal and also the significance of Israel's new government, the most far-right government in its history, um, now uh, coming into power with Benjamin Netanyahu appointing his longtime political ally, Tzachai Negbi, as head of the National Security Council? Um, he is known as the hawk on Iran. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, I think Iranians at large and the activists on the ground, for sure, they are seeking the solidarity of the international community and especially its leaders. They are not looking for the international community and these, you know, foreign governments to make new deals with the Islamic Republic. They are asking for, for them to um, really highlight the, you know, the uh, executions that are going on, the repression that is going on, and not to make uh, deals with a state that is repressing and killing its own people. That has been the demand of the protesters. As far as Israel is concerned, and its new national security head who, uh, you know, recently commented that its uh, pilots should get ready because in two or three years' time they might be bombing Iran. Certainly the, um, you know, geopolitical situation in the region is volatile and um, not having a deal with Iran and uh, Iran being able to develop its nuclear uh, nuclear energy, of course, has always raised concerns about nuclear arms, even though Iran does state that it is not pursuing them. 
Uh, and so it's a volatile, uh, you know, situation that Western governments and other foreign governments are trying to balance. But that has to be, uh, you know, that has to be balanced against the kinds of demands that foreign governments will make of the state in Iran. And uh, fundamental things have to be, have to change before any talk of that uh, could proceed. And many protesters and most protesters and activists would, would say that they are not looking for that. This is they are not looking for a deal with the, with the Islamic Republic because they are trying to unseat the Islamic Republic. And now, could you explain just before we end whether there are any governments in Europe or elsewhere uh, that have been taking measures uh, in solidarity with the protesters in Iran? I mean, most recently, the foreign uh, minister of Germany has said that they will not be entering uh, nuclear negotiations with Iran. Uh, she has stated, the spokesperson for the minister has stated that Germany is on the side of the protesters and their focus and their attention is toward the repression that is ongoing and to the, uh, you know, to the people's fight for freedom and justice and that they are not interested in starting negotiations. So that was really circulated on social media. It was embraced by by Iranian activists and other, and you know Iranians at large, and that is kind of the the um, you know the approach that Iranians are looking for. We want to thank you both for being with us. Nahid Siamdoust is Middle East and Media Studies professor at University of Texas, Austin, former journalist who's reported across the Middle East, including in Iran. And Hadi Gaimi, the executive director and founder of the Center for Human Rights in Iran, uh, years ago was a professor of physics at CUNY, the City University of New York, and worked at Human Rights Watch as well, where he particularly exposed the plight of migrant workers uh, in Dubai. Next up, Russian President Putin says he's prepared to end the war in Ukraine and that he'll negotiate with anyone. Are negotiations likely as Russia pounds uh, Ukraine across the country today? We'll speak with longtime anti-war activist Professor Gilbert Ashkar, author with Noam Chomsky of Perilous Power, the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. Stay with us. The protest song Mama Don't Watch TV by the Russian activist group Pussy Riot. According to the group, the song uses the words of a captured Russian conscript soldier who told his mother, there are no Nazis here. Don't watch TV. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Russia's launched a massive series of missile attacks across Ukraine today, with reports of explosions and fresh power outages in cities including Lviv, Kyiv and Odessa.
The attacks come after Ukrainian officials called on residents to evacuate the city of Kherson amidst heavy Russian artillery strikes. On Wednesday, two explosions rattled a maternity hospital in Kherson, where at least five people were recovering from childbirth. It was frightening, also unexpected. The explosions began abruptly. The window handles started to tear off. Glass. All my hands are still shaking, frankly speaking. On Wednesday, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, gave his annual address to the Ukrainian parliament, where he again pressed for Ukraine to join the European Union. Zelensky's been pushing a 10-point peace plan, while Russian President Vladimir Putin says he's prepared to end the war in Ukraine, saying he'll negotiate with everyone involved in this process about acceptable solutions. Are negotiations likely? For more, we're joined by the longtime anti-war activist and professor, Jobert Ashkar, author of a number of books, including Perilous Power, the Middle East and U.S. Foreign Policy, co-authored with Noam Chomsky, and The People Want, a radical exploration of Arab uprising. His next book, to be published in April, is titled The New Cold War, the United States, Russia and China um, from Kosovo to Ukraine. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Professor Ashkar. So you have this barrage of missiles, Russian missiles, across Ukraine today. And at the same time, you have President Putin saying he is prepared to negotiate with anyone. Can you respond to the situation? And do you think uh, negotiations are possible and what the peace plan of, professors, of uh, President Zelensky is? Yeah. Good morning, uh, Amy and uh, and Nermin. Uh, thank you. Thank you both for uh, for hosting me. Uh, I mean, this uh, what's happening in Ukraine? This uh, systematic destruction of uh, civilian infrastru infrastructure by the the, the, the Russian side uh, is is a war crime. I mean, uh, human rights organizations uh, have clearly made stated that uh, from the beginning, it started uh, two months ago, it's been already two months of systematic uh, destruction, systematic bombing of the civilian infrastructure. So this is horrifying, of course, and it, it must be uh, very, very strongly condemned, no less than uh, the condemnation of the uh, U.S. destruction of Iraq's infrastructure, its civilian infrastructure, in 1991. I mean, uh, we have to be consistent. If we have denounced and condemned what happened in Iraq, we have to denounce and condemn what is happening today in Ukraine. Now, about uh, uh, the statements about negotiations are, uh, I think, today more uh, uh, propaganda devices than uh, real, than the uh, the uh, than real. I mean, uh, that's because if you see what conditions they are uh, associated with, uh, they I mean, they they sound like uh, more ultimatums than than real willingness to to negotiate. On the Russian side, I mean, it's been a while now, since September, that Vladimir Putin is making statements calling the, uh, calling for a ceasefire and uh, uh, calling the Ukrainians to return to the negotiating table. That's his own words. But if you read clearly what he's been saying, he's saying at the same time, 
uh, that there's uh, no 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 way that uh, there could be any discussion about the, the four provinces, the four Ukrainian provinces that uh, uh, he annexed to uh, to Russia very officially. So if this is excluded from any possible negotiation, how do you? I mean, how how possibly could that uh, negotiation or even the ceasefire leading to it happen? On the uh, the Ukrainian side, they may be more flexible, but sometimes you have statements like the recent one by the uh, Foreign Affairs Ministry of Ukraine saying that the condition for negotiations would be that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin and other Russian uh, leaders uh, be deferred uh, in front of uh, an international tribunal. O of course, that's again uh, putting the, the bar very high for any possible negotiation. So I think for now, both sides are, are just uh, probably betting on, on being able to achieve more on the ground and not really uh, uh, serious about a ceasefire and negotiations under the present conditions. Uh, Professor Ashkar, I want to go to some of your, you wrote uh, a number of articles uh, before and uh, following the uh, Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. You pointed out rightly anticipating that Russia's invasion would strengthen NATO immeasurably, including with Finland and Sweden seeking to join the military alliance, which is, of course, what's happened. Now, uh, a lot of uh, people pointed out that the re one of the reasons for the invasion uh, in the first place was NATO's eastward expansion. If that's the case, uh, first of all, do you agree that that's the case? And second of all, uh, how does one understand what's come about as a result since it was anticipated not just by you, but many others? How does that, uh, uh, how did that figure into uh, Russia's uh, calculations uh, for the invasion? They couldn't possibly have thought that NATO would be weakened as a result. Right. Uh, well, I, I think, that first of all, I mean, to start with the last point, uh, this has been a terrible miscalculation. I mean, that's one of those historical blunders uh, uh, committed usually by leaders who, who have uh, who lose the, 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 the sense of reality and of, of measure and who completely overestimate their, their own force and underestimate the capacity of the 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 the, the 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 those that they aggress to to resist, and that has been very clear. I mean, remember that uh, for the first uh, few weeks, uh, the Russian Russian troops were encircling Kiev, and the plan was to to take the capital and bring down the government, uh, remove all uh, you know all the the leadership of the Ukrainian state, and replace them with uh, something like what you have in Belarus, that is a government that is compliant to Moscow. And that failed miserably. So I think that there has been basically a huge miscalculation. That was a completely reckless move from whichever angle you, you take it. I mean, even leaving aside the, the, the justice, the, the, the human, uh, human uh, considerations and the rest, even from the, the, the sheer uh, point of view, I mean, the, of sheer realism, if you want, or calculation that was terribly, terribly uh, uh, miscalculated. Now, um, the, the, the issue of NATO, uh, I mean, it depends how we are looking at things. If we are speaking in historical terms, uh, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that uh, the expansion of NATO the eastward expansion of NATO, 
that was started by the by uh, the administration of of Bill Clinton in the 90s. Uh, this terrible, fateful decision to expand NATO instead of either freezing or even better dissolving NATO, as should have been with the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, this decision has been uh, uh, crucial in creating the conditions that led to the, the, the present state of the world and this uh, uh, state of relations between Western countries and Russia. Um, and there have been a lot of, of moves since 2008, very clearly, from Russia that can be construed as counter moves uh, 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 to, to block the possible uh, accession to NATO of uh, Georgia and Ukraine uh, after uh, two waves of uh, of uh, of uh, uh, um, uh, these, I mean, accessions to NATO of of countries that were previously under Soviet uh, domination or even part of the Soviet Union. The three Baltic states uh, were part of the Soviet Union. They were Soviet republics, and yet they were integrated into NATO. And of course, for from the Russian side, this has always been perceived as aggressive and hostile. And for good reason. I mean, in the first place, why is it that uh, NATO is so eager to integrate all these states and not offer Russia itself and never offer to Russia itself uh, uh, to join NATO? I mean, if if it weren't actually uh, 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 meaning by all this to to in, to uh, to how to say to encircle uh, and to to block Russia. So uh, uh, Vladimir Putin himself is, to a large extent, uh, a product of, of U.S. administration's policies towards Russia, including terrible economic policies in the 90s, the, you know, the so-called shock therapy, neoliberal shock therapy, that created the ground, uh, uh, along with national frustration, to the rise of something like Vladimir Putin. Now, all this being said, to say that the 2014 war of Russia on Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea were meant to a large extent to block Ukraine's uh, accession to NATO, that can be uh, uh, sustained as an argument. And indeed, ever since Russia has, you know, uh, annexed Crimea, uh, there was no longer any possibility for Ukraine to join NATO because NATO cannot take on board a country that, that is de facto at war with another country in a state of war. So that wouldn't happen. And for the same reason, you had the incursion of Russia in Georgia in 2008, also to block any prospect of Georgia's uh, accession uh, to NATO. But in 20, I mean, this year, in February this year, uh, the, the reason was not there was no uh, immediate prospect of any uh, uh, accession of Ukraine to NATO. No, that was much different. It has been prepared over several months uh, by Vladimir Putin as part of his own uh, uh, first domestic policies of uh, nationalism, of Ukraine mania, as one Russian uh, author called it. And uh, uh, to uh, with with the view also that he had that uh, he could uh, actually invade Ukraine and change its government and uh, without without much uh, much trouble. So that's the miscalculation that uh, that we mentioned. And I think one of the reasons he's very bothered by Ukraine is actually what happened with the election of Zelensky. Whatever one can, uh, may think of Zelensky, but the election 
in free elections of a maverick uh, like uh, uh, Zelensky is is something that is felt as very as a very bad example from uh, from uh, from someone like uh, Vladimir Putin. Of course, Z- Zelensky in his mind can only. Uh, remind him of, of Navalny, his own opponent, and what he, what, uh, you know, as we know, all, all that happened to, to Navalny. So I think there is this, on the one hand, the, the, the fear that you might have uh, the development of some kind of democratic society and polity in Ukraine, which is unacceptable, uh, going in the exactly opposite direction of the increasing authoritarian and autocratic uh, uh, transformation of of the of the russian side uh, i wouldn't hesitate even calling present day russia uh, the regime as neo fascist in the sense that it has a lot of the features of fascism without uh, the you know this paramilitary kind of uh, aspect but uh, uh, on on a background of of uh, imitating democracy it's a fake democracy of course you have fake elections an imitation of democracy but basically you have a very uh, a repressive and right-wing uh, regime uh, professor Ashkar, could you elaborate just a little bit on the point that you made about uh, uh, navalny and uh, zelensky why uh, putin would uh, view them or may already view them as somehow uh, linked or analogous figures and then also the, the i want to turn to the the article that you wrote uh, <clears throat> on the very day the days after the invasion headlined a memorandum on the radical anti-imperialist position regarding the war in Ukraine. Explain why you wrote that piece. Right. Uh, First, I mean, what I said about uh, Zelensky and Navalny, I think, uh, uh, I mean, the the possibility of the election of someone like uh, Zelensky uh, as a kind of maverick, he was perceived as such. And uh, on top of that, I mean, that's even uh, someone who is a uh, Russophone. I mean, whose uh, mother tongue is Russian and uh, who is of, of, uh, of Jewish descent. I mean, this is something that represents a kind of democratic achievement in a country like Ukraine that uh, is shocking for someone like Putin because of the uh, uh, cultural osmosis, the, 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 the strong cultural links uh, and including linguistic between Ukraine and, and Russia. So the example is very troubling. And it's I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, that was uh, one factor, of course, not the only one, but one important factor in uh, the uh, escalation of Vladimir Putin's attitude towards uh, Ukraine, uh, starting from the summer of uh, 2021. Uh, About the memorandum uh, that I wrote uh, three days into the uh, invasion, um, that is because of, of the fact that I have been involved in many discussions about wars, about imperialist wars, and uh, about the meaning of anti-imperialism uh, uh, last year, I had an article, a long article in the nation, uh, about, about the meaning of anti-imperialism. And therefore, I, I thought that, uh, this, the confusion that developed among the radical left, uh, was such that, uh, there was a need to, to clarify what sh- the anti-imperialist position should be towards, uh, this, this war. And that's why I, I wrote this memorandum. And my key point is that we have uh, that anti-imperialism uh, 
should be against all imperialism, not against the U.S. or the Western Western imperialist countries alone. And secondly, that anti-imperialism should be based on the right of the people to self-determination. That's the basis of, of anti-imperialism. And that should be our, our guide, guiding uh, principle uh, in defining our position as anti-war, as uh, uh, left-wing, as progressive uh, towards uh, all the wars of, uh, of this kind. Professor Ashkar, you're a professor of international relations at the School of Oriental and African Studies um, at the University of London, and we're speaking to you in Marseille, France. You um, also look at the media, and in France, there's a different approach. Certainly, the president, um, Macron, has a different approach to Putin, often seen as a back channel for Biden in talking to Putin. And I'm wondering now, as we begin to conclude this conversation, um, what you think, as Russia just pounds Ukraine today, as the U.S. gives billions of dollars worth of military weapons to Ukraine, Zelensky just uh, addressed a joint session of Congress in person in Washington, D.C. What you see the ending of the war could look like, and if you see the U.N. involved in the negotiations around that. Oh, definitely. I can't think of any end of this war without involvement of the UN. I mean, short of, you know, some miracle or some uh, big surprise like uh, the collapse of, uh, of the, of uh, Putin's uh, government or Putin's regime. I mean, short of something that would completely change the situation. Uh, uh, the, the only way to, to end this war is, uh, is also through the United Nations, the United Nations coming in. And that means also China. Now, I can see that both the United States and China uh, have not been eager to uh, to let the UN uh, take up this issue and uh, and move towards, uh, 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 I mean, a lasting peace and just peace, which can only be a peace without annexation and uh, a peace uh, based on the right of the people's right to self-determination in disputed territories. That's the uh, peaceful, democratic way of solving such issues, not by war, not by force. We are against the acquisition of territory by force. And this is one of the key principles upon which the United Nations Charter is based. And so that's that's the the, the the point here. I mean, any solution to that should go through the United Nations. Any negotiations should go through the United Nations and respect the principles of the uh, of the UN Charter. Now, uh, I'm not seeing the the Biden administration uh, uh, really uh, active on 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 trying to get to that which would involve also a cooperation with China. And uh, the Biden administration has been extremely aggressive, extremely hostile to China, continuing the, the uh, hostile policies that uh, st were started by, by Donald Trump in particular. Uh, uh, and this has been uh, quite uh, counterproductive for the, the prospect uh, for, for peace, because China very obviously holds a, a key position in that it's the only... Uh, important ally that uh, that uh, Russia may look at, and uh, and therefore uh, China's position uh, would uh, weighs a lot on uh, on whatever decision Russia makes. 
We want to thank you so much for being with us, uh, Gilbert Ashkar, professor of international relations at SOAS, the School of International and African Studies at the University of London, uh, speaking to us from Marseille, France. He's been active in the socialist and anti-war movement for decades, author of a number of books, including Perilous Power, the Middle East and U.S. Foreign Policy, co-authored with Noam Chomsky, The People Want, a Radical Exploration of the Arab Uprising, his next book coming out in April, The New Cold War, The United States, Russia and China, From Kosovo to Ukraine. That does it for our show. To see all of our shows on radio and TV podcasts, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks so much for joining us.